And it's four o'clock on a Tuesday. Time for Tuesday Runtime. Jan Bartlett, and I'll be here until six. I'm happy to announce four new pledges for Tuesday Home Time for the recent Radiothon. Many thanks to Liz Sanderson, Neil Blake, Spiros Gavavs, and Brian Newman. And many, many thanks. And it's not too late. Either by phone, 9419 8377 or online, 3cr.org.au. And a tax deductible receipt will be all yours. But for today, new president in the Philippines this Thursday, I'll be speaking with human rights activist Peter Murphy and McAllister, who you've just been listening to with her Celtic folk show, activist and broadcaster, what it all means for her. Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees was in Lismore trying out the jam donuts. Nick McClellan on the result of the French Assembly elections. But first, we've got him, Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when we have experienced and enjoyed the great benefits of privatisation, the wrenching of inefficient essential services from the bloated hand of the public sector and handing them to the efficiency of the private sector and, well, some not-so-essential services like airports and airlines as they recharge their batteries or, well, no, recharge the coal and gas and fossil fuel and do their bit for the planet. With the only Irish accent I loathe, Alan Joystick, supremo of the airline that used to be our airline, advocating the development of less polluting biofuels. And although we and Alan enjoy the benefits of the super-efficient private sector, Alan is so generous a person he has come up with a role the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector can play, just so it won't feel left out. The public purse, Alan announced, can assist the airline which used to be by footing the bill. Quant asked for money. See the 20 bill or so it copped from the public purse in JobKeeper and other corporate welfare wasn't nearly enough for us to enjoy the collective benefits of a private sector of privatisation, as Alan keeps informing us. And the destination for Alan's less polluting, publicly inefficiently funded, privately efficient polluters also privatised. And don't airport users just rave about how much cheaper everything is, thanks to the private sector monopoly from parking to the walking in the door fee and almost give away food and drink prices we have to keep asking how can they afford to give us that so cheaply almost giving everything away anyway the privatised monopoly airport presumably privatised because government had an ideological objection to a public monopoly because that could lead to ripping off and taking advantage of and knowing the private sector would never dream of Anyway, things are going so badly, thanks to COVID and all that, that an airport spokesperson this week decried the fact that the government had not come up with nearly enough corporate welfare for the airport and its struggling shareholders. Heaven forbid it might have to increase its prices, but yes, another fine example of the benefits of privatisation. But none as clear as this energy crisis obviously caused by the inefficient, bloated hand of the public sector, because there's no way a private sector whose only concern is the community and social good could create a crisis. After all, it's only reasonable they can turn off the power when they consider the price for that power isn't nearly as high as they demand. 
and thankfully corporate welfare came to the rescue. See, there's the important difference between responsible caring employers, the caring private sector, and irresponsible evil unions and lazy avaricious workers. If unions, if workers go on strike, they are fined millions. When the energy behemoths go on strike, they are handed millions, which shows how evil unions get what they deserve and good privatised behemoths get what they don't deserve. If we still have any doubts about the wisdom of handing essential services to caring corporate boardrooms, just imagine what would be happening now if our energy production and distribution was still in the hands of the public sector. Just imagine. And it gets worse for the fossils. The Queensland government has increased royalties on coal for no better reason than they are making massive profits, trillions, due to record prices, with the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review expressing how we all feel. A rip-off, it gave its objective opinion. While the great corporates themselves, when they got their collective breaths back, declared they would fight this blatant attack on their rights to dig up the land. After all, they keep telling us coal and gas are somehow part of the transition we must make from, well, from, from coal and gas. Indeed, one ad telling us how wonderful is, gas calls it renewable gas. And in fairness, it wouldn't hurt if they could just give us a bit of an explanation of that one. But faced with this grossly unfair rip-off, at least great transnational coal giants Glen Rotten to the core and white profits are heaven were able to console themselves by announcing record profits. We, we hope that makes them, and particularly their shareholders, feel just that little bit better and compare their commitment to social responsibility to the irresponsible action of the lowest of low paid intent on extorting an extra dollar an hour from their caring employers, from those hard-working shareholders under the economy-wrecking falsehood that the price of labour should at least rise in line with caring business class prices and inflation. It's a disgrace, leading us to the much-coveted consistency of the weak award and... We're proud to announce the big award has gone to the Reserve Profits Bank Governor, Philip Lowpay for others. Isn't it a boon for satire when someone who wants the lowest of low paid to get lower and lower paid's name is Low? Philip Lowpay for others, who two weeks ago agreed the price of labour should keep up with the price of capital, but this week declared the opposite, that the price of labour must decrease and decrease else their caring employers would be robbed of the difference. But then that price of capital was pointed out clearly in Dad's Capital, with Philip Low pay for others pertinent point echoed by caring employers that the dollar an hour granted to the lowest of low would cost jobs, bankrupt the economy, close businesses, worse, create the inflation which preceded the crippling dollar an hour expressed so sensibly as we've come to expect from our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group who declared inflation was due 100% to lazy avaricious workers and evil unions and nothing, absolutely nothing to do with caring employers or little matters that are anathema to caring employers like greed. In Innes's language, the inflation which led to the dollar an hour decision was caused by the 
dollar-an-hour decision. Nothing if not logical, the old Innes. And the new Minister for Caring Business Class Relations said Philip Lowe pay for others didn't say what he said. But don't worry, Philip, you're, you're still getting the award. Your Consistency of the Week award is on its way. And one caring employer writing a brilliant think piece in the Lord Rupert of Wapping News Very Limited Media displayed, displaying just how much caring employers really care about their wage slaves, or sorry, sorry, workers, said a four-day working week would be a disaster because it would make workers so stressed. See, caring, thinking only of others. Yes, spot on. Imagine the stress. A day off trying to do what you want to do, to enjoy what you want to enjoy, spoiled by the constant stress of wishing you were back in the workplace doing your bit for your caring employer. It'd be agony. Speaking of, Lord Rupert of Wapping sees about to end yet another marriage, this time with former model Jerry Hall, but fair enough, I, I suppose she's getting a bit too old for Rupert. Financial pages informed us a funeral director had raised $10 million, and I thought, this is the greatest miracle since Lazarus, or the dear baby Jesus himself, but, but why do you sort out of business? But silly me, it turned out to be $10 million, presumably so it can go on dispatching the unraisable. Like those shot up by the day in the US of the UN of the US of the world mass shootings. Lovers of liberty, freedom and democratic democracy exercising their democratic constitutional rights. Aided and abetted this week by the Supreme Trump. Hang on, hang on. Oh, Supreme Trump Court ruling a New York law requiring gun purchasers to give a reason for wanting a gun illegal. Uh, why do you want to make this purchase? I want to, like, you know, shoot up as many people as I, you know, like, can. Right, good reason, good reason. You you pass the test. After all, it's, it's your right. Look, I recommend this assault rifle. It's very popular in shoot-ups. A great record, providing you with minutes of fun, fun, fun. And federally attempts to prevent potential mass shooters from getting hold of their assault rifle until they turn 21, when they'll be mature enough to shoot up schools and churches and shopping centres and things, have been thwarted by the believers in their liberty, freedom and democracy right to shoot up at birth, or pre-birth because the Supreme Trump, sorry again, court, Trump court, also ruled have the right to shoot up whoever they want to shoot up from the moment of conception. And talk about disrespect for a great institution. I saw one banner screaming, Abort the court! Shame, banner waver, shame. In the week that was sport, in a post-match interview after Melbourne returned to the winning list Thursday night, an incisive commentator asked a player, oh, Does it feel good to win? <laughs> now here's our big challenging question, listener. Did the player answer A, yes, or B, no? Tough one. Answer next week. Finally, caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, had the rump left in marginal city seats calling for the smelling salts when he declared millions had voted for the coalition, including the hayseed and sheepshit lot, and therefore he would maintain the climate change, if there is such a thing, and energy policy they took to the election. Look, I know he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he obviously hasn't yet twigged, so, so 
someone should point out to Constable Duffer that many more millions did not vote for that policy, inform him that they actually lost the election. Good afternoon. Kevin Healy in fine form as usual, and you can hear more of Kevin tomorrow at nine with City Limits. Stay tuned in to 3CR Community Radio. I'm speaking now with Peter Murphy, human rights activist for the Philippines. And Peter, what's the state of play in the Philippines at the moment in relation to the new president? Is he a new president yet? Rodrigo Duterte is the outgoing president. Um, and he's still got the powers of the president until the inauguration of uh, the new one, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. The inauguration is on Thursday, June 30. We, you know, just uh, having all of, you know, the ministers of what would you call the departmental secretaries, cabinet members of uh, Rodrigo Duterte are still also in office. And it will all change on Friday. Well, will it change greatly? Uh, I don't think so, but there will be a change. I mean, there will be a, a different cabinet, and there's some indication already that uh, you know Duterte's people are being a bit pushed aside, and uh, people associated with Estrada, Arroyo, and even the old Marcos Senior uh, will feature in the new cabinet. One of the things going on right now is that the designated new national security advisor is a woman for the first time and uh, I'm sure she's a very conservative character but she did uh, recently make statements that the red tagging uh, was a counterproductive exercise and almost immediately after that the incumbent uh, national security advisor uh, really went on a rampage you know there's been uh, the declaring of some other people in the National Democratic Front, especially a very elderly retired negotiator, Louis Halandoni, as a terrorist, and um, the uh, ordering of 27 websites in the Philippines to be shut down because they're associated with communism and terrorism. I mean, they're all legally, they've been operating for years and years, um, related to some church bodies, some trade unions, and, and many of them are, are like... Uh, Crikey, or you know, in the New Daily, in our sort of terms, you know, their news websites, because they're, they're critical of the government. They've been uh, hit with this order, and they've been taken off the air. In fact, yeah, I think that that's a sort of a, a last gasp from Esperon. His name is. I'm hoping that 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 will change, but uh, you know, it, it's it's really living on hope because the continuity between Duterte and Marcos, I think, will be the predominant thing. The economic program will continue. The um, relations with the United States, the tension with China, ongoing downgrading of agriculture in the country, speculation, and and just outright plunder of uh, public resources. That will all continue. So. And I think from our point of view um, on human rights, um, this means that the poverty, the uh, insecurity of life and the impunity of state forces in taking life or detaining people on completely fabricated charges, uh, that will all continue as well. Can you talk a little bit about the peace negotiator who's on that list now, Louise, a long-time fighter for peace? I can't remember all the details about uh, Louis' life, but you know he's, as a, he came from a relatively wealthy family in Negros. 
he became a priest. During his uh, duties as a priest, he was confronted with the plight of the sugar workers in Negros. They were extremely poor, faced a lot of violence if they spoke up for themselves. And so he became associated with organizing sugar workers. And then martial law came down and, and hit hard against that sort of work. And I think he had to go underground himself and he took part in quite a bit of underground organizing in the like nineteen seventy two, three, four period and was associated with one of the very first strikes that took place in the end under under martial law. It was actually a rum distillery, Tandawai. And then uh I guess it was uh National Democratic Front, the Communist Party of the Philippines, both underground, asked him to leave the country, go to the Netherlands to be a point of information for the international community. So, you know, it's, it's a very long time ago, 1976, since he's really lived in the Philippines. So to, to, to accuse him of being a terrorist in the Philippines is like a totally absurd. It can only be vaguely sustained because the definition of terrorism in this anti-terrorism law is so broad. It really captures anybody who can be accused of causing, you know, public disquiet. That is someone who's involved in an argument. <laughs> and of course, the National Democratic Front is involved in a big argument about poverty, justice, and, and the sort of future development of the country. They're arguing all about that with the series of governments we've had since the 1970s. It just shows how stupid that law is that someone like Louis Hallandoni could be, you know, labelled that way and action be taken. Um, not, not that it has any, any material effect on Louis because I'm sure he doesn't have a bank account that can be seized in the Philippines and, and so on. I'm sure living on a pension in, in the Netherlands, um, a modest life. I think Louis, of course, is protesting about this and uh, continues to play some sort of consultative or advisory role, but he's really not a player uh, in any big way, even in the peace talks. Can you talk a bit more about the body or the people who make up this organisation that puts these people on a list? Who are they? In his case, it's called the Anti-Terrorism Council. So the law was adopted in mid-2020, and the council was set up under the terms of the law. It's basically military and police officers. Uh, the national security advisor is like uh, the deputy on the, on this council of the president. And technically, I think the president's the head of it too. It's purely an executive body. It's like if you can imagine Australia where the prime minister decides who, who gets arrested or who's labelled. There's no judicial process involved at all. There is another step in this, but if the council of these military and police officers name an organisation or a person as a terrorist, then surveillance can be intensified on them. They can be arrested and held for 24 days without a charge. All of of this uh, guilt by association around the person. And then if the council, and of course their financial assets can be seized and all this. And then uh, if the council wants to proscribe them, they then have to go to the courts. But they haven't done that with anybody yet. You see how much damage can be done just with this arbitrary power. Yeah, I think we should just imagine that... um, the chief of the army or his deputy or her deputy and, and the chief of the federal police and state police, they're 
they're on this council. They decide. Is this the same as red tagging or is that something on top? That's the same thing because in general they're saying these people are communist terrorists. It's a sort of a dual thing because the law is called the anti-terrorism law. They put the word terrorism in and it's been going on for a few years as they've been building up to this. Often it's you know, an organisation or group of people is called a communist terrorist group. CTG is even, they've got acronyms for all of this. Yeah, being accused of uh, being associated with the New People's Army, the Communist Party of the Philippines, and now the National Democratic Front of the Philippines is sufficient. Well, that's called red tagging, and that's sufficient to get you on a death list, to get you know, all this action uh, aimed at you. The red tagging has been going on for years and years but became much more intense after 2018 when another body was formed. It's called the National Task Force to End Local Communist Armed Conflict and that also got the president at the top of the task force, his deputies Esperon in this case and uh, it's like a parallel um, but it's a more freewheeling than the Anti-Terrorism Council organizes raids uh, clearly to me there's a pattern where it organizes assassinations the red tagging takes the form of very you know intense uh, social media posts posters being put up naming people big uh, banners with photos on them saying all these people are terrorists and hung all around you know towns and uh, villages and in cities it's completely you know, unregulated. There's no re reference to any uh, investigation or judicial or process or right of appeal or anything like that. So it's just a sort of uh, operation of denunciation and slander, a bit like the old, good old-fashioned witch hunts. Definitely there's, because of the anti-communist rhetoric in it, it's like McCarthyism gone crazy. Can you name another country that behaves the same way as this? I'm, I'm sure that there's similar patterns in uh, Latin America. In Asia, uh, we don't really uh, have this sort of, this sort of uh, intensity uh, in any other, like if you look at Malaysia, Indonesia has got an incredible, you know, the government has got an incredible uh, phobia for anything to do with uh, Marxism or communism. But this kind of uh, campaign doesn't, doesn't go on in Indonesia in, in this form at all. So there's, you know, there's intense surveillance of any so-called leftists, but there's not, not this um, crazed, uh, feverish uh, pursuit of, of individuals and organisations. Maybe for the last 20 years, Indonesia has been far more troubled by Islamic uh, fundamentalist violence than anything to do with the left. But I do know trade unionists in, in Indonesia are, you know, really concerned about the level of uh, surveillance that they do experience. But it's not like what's going on in the Philippines. Well, it just makes you wonder, surely, how long Professor Clarita Carlos is going to last because she not only said that red tagging must stop, but there should injustice and inequality should be addressed. Yes, but I think that's very normal rhetoric from all sides of politics in the Philippines you know, when they're engaged in a certain uh, public relations exercise. So even Rodrigo Duterte would say he's very worried about poverty, but he, <laughs> he's only done things that exacerbate it. I think you can expect the same from uh, the next Marcos presidency. Professor Carlos, yeah, who knows how long she will stay in the job, but I, I'm pretty sure she'll stay for a while. 
I think there's, there is some tension, you know, between the incoming cabinet and the outgoing people. And it's hard to perceive exactly what their argument is. But, you know, the Philippines is, has gained a lot of notoriety in the international community under Duterte. It was very notorious also under Arroyo in the first decade of this century. And then you'd have to go back to Marcos for the next period of great notoriety. So I think most uh, even conservative Filipinos and, and leaders in the Philippines would want this to sort of be calmed down, to you know, get the International Criminal Court off their back, to get the UN Human Rights Council off their back. Some kind of um, diplomatic you know, offensive like Clarita Carlos's uh, message is, is really well-timed, uh, I think, but they would have to do something, I think, to demonstrate that, that they're ending the, the campaign of red-tagging. We, we have to wait until next week, really, to see if uh, there's really any sort of uh, substantial shift going on. You know, there's about 700 political prisoners in the Philippines, and, and nearly 500 of them were, were put there by the Duterte uh, presidency. So, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of scope for, you know, relatively substantive gestures by the incoming government just to shift the perception. And this will depend, depends on what they're thinking about their economic and diplomatic uh, profile. Um, but I, I think if they want, you know, more consideration from governments, especially in Europe and North America and Australia, say, then they need to change the perception and they need to show that they're changing something. From our point of view in ICHIRP, we're calling, first of all, for the release of uh, Senator Lima de Lima, Lila de Lima. She's a senator and she's been um, in prison now for five years. She's really there because she criticised the uh, killing of poor people in in the name of a war on drugs since the International Criminal Court investigator has found that that campaign of drug anti-drug operations amounts to a crime against humanity. I think um, Senator DeLima is fully vindicated and there's absolutely no way she should be in prison. One of the things we're doing is calling for her release and for the release of all the, all the political prisoners. That would be great if that happened. Well, that notoriety doesn't seem to have affected... Australian government's support for Duterte and we'll see what happens with the new Labor government. Yes, uh, so from, again, it's a new situation in Australia. It hasn't quite settled down yet, um, but uh, you see that uh, the Foreign Minister has, has been hyperactive on uh, the South Pacific and she's been to Indonesia. Uh, I think that we we are determined to get some kind of uh, discussion with her or her office about uh, a reset of the Philippine uh, relationship. I don't know what will come of that, but I'm sure that we will get, at least in the opening period, uh, a, a genuine exchange of views, whereas with the uh, previous foreign minister, we basically got a formula which was, yes, you know, we've privately objected to these things happening and uh, you know they did vote the right way in the UN Human Rights Council but nothing changed in terms of the military relationship so I think Australia the Australian governments have got a sort of dual track policy on the Philippines and you know where ministers and and uh, significant people in government might be 
really horrified, genuinely horrified at what uh, Duterte was doing. Others were very willing to help him keep going uh, because of the tension with China, because of the relationship of Australia with the United States. I mean, we can do a lot better than that. This sort of thing makes a mockery of all of the trumpeting about Australian values, which we so sadly hear endlessly from prime ministers. Yeah, we're looking for a change there, and uh, hopefully the dialogue can start soon. Just finishing off with um, the red tagging and the other issues, someone should remind the Philippines government that the, the government in China is a communist government. <laughs> Yes, yes. I think quite a lot of Filipinos are making this point, but um, the whole thing is a bit absurd, isn't it? I mean, uh, it's a communist government of, of billionaires. It's just a sort of uh, slippery use of language on all sorts of sides. So, yes, we can say this uh, and we should say it, but I think when we're you know, seriously trying to grapple with the problems in the Philippines and what role Australia and other governments might be playing there. We, we can't really indulge in too many tricks. You know, it's, it's too serious and there's been, far, you know, tens of thousands of lives have been lost in this last six years uh, because of this violent, inhuman uh, government there. It'll be a bit of a stain, I think, on Australia's record that we did so little about it, that in fact we continued to finance it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very um, serious about you know approaching this you know directly, clearly, and trying to you know make the facts speak for themselves. Another story that I've looked at, Peter, is the fear that when Marcos Jr. takes power, the documents that are in the archives relating to the atrocities of his father's regime will be mm -hmm. destroyed. Yeah, I think there's a really genuine fear that that can happen and that might happen next week yeah i heard that radio report about the, the frantic efforts of those people in that institute to try to digitize and preserve uh, as much as they can um, it's really clear that um, one of the major projects of the marcoses i know for a couple of decades now has really been to whitewash or sanitize their their family story that it did did have a measurable impact in this election we just saw happen. So they will continue with this. One of the cabinet appointments is that the vice president-elect, Sarah Duterte, will be the education secretary. So I think, yes, we can see more book burning and more purging of uh, information and also a much more sustained attack on the main teachers' union, the Alliance of Concerned Teachers, which was already happening, you know, really, really badly under Duterte. Well, it will continue, and uh, I think that's going to be a pretty big issue for the international trade union movement, the way it's going. Thank you so much, Peter. Ah, uh, good. Thank you very much for this interview, Jan. And we will see what happens in the Philippines after Wednesday. That was Peter Murphy. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. A special guest today, one of our very own, Anne McAllister, long-time presenter of the Celtic Folk Show, which proceeds Tuesday home time, of course. I spoke with Anne and began by looking back at her early family life in suburban Melbourne to find out the origins of her lifetime activism. 
And then I should begin by looking at the family name, Mullane, Irish, I believe. Were mum and dad or both involved in any way in the politics of Ireland? No, actually it didn't. Obviously Mullane was my father's name and he identified as an Irish Catholic, but he wasn't interested in politics, so he brought me up to understand that culturally I was Irish, but politics didn't come into it, no. What about your mother? Well, <laughs> my mother, that's an interesting story. My mother's father was Irish, but she never met him. She wasn't interested in Irish politics either. So I came into Irish politics when I was much older. Um, when I first actually became a member of the 3CR community, I was always interested in the music. I somehow found out that there was a program at 3CR on a Saturday morning at 9.30 that they sometimes played traditional Irish music. So I started listening to the Connolly Association program every week to listen to the music and I got caught up in the politics. The politics was <laughs> way too much for me and I got caught up in it that way. But in a way, the members of that Connolly Association program were your mentors? Oh, most definitely, most definitely. I, I spent a lot of time, particularly with Mel and Seamus. I'm still very close friends with one of their daughters. Over the years, I spent a lot of time with Mel, particularly after Seamus very sadly passed away. But yes, I learned so much from both of them, particularly Seamus. Seamus was a born teacher and just loved sharing the truth about Ireland. Yeah, it was, it was a wonderful time, actually. How long after you first started to listen to the music did you become part of the program? Fairly soon after. I still remember the day I rang the number, the phone number that they used to give at the end of the program and, and, and Mel answered the phone and she was so kind to me. I got really emotional. I, I can still remember it. My Irishness was just so important to me and it, it was for me such a breakthrough to be able to connect with people who saw that we identify as Irish and, and that's how they treated me and it, it made a huge difference in my life, it really did. I was so grateful. And this was the time also of great trouble in Ireland with the, the men on the blankets, the killings, no, this was after that. What I did get involved in at, at that time was a man who was on hunger strike. I can't remember his name. He actually survived the hunger strike. He came off it and he's now a member of the Doyle. There were a few of those people from that time who actually came to Australia. Did you meet any of them? No, but at that time, the, the man who was on a hunger strike, his sister lived here and I met her, but no, I didn't meet any of the others. When did the Celtic Folk Show come and was that after the Connolly finished or were you doing both programs at the same time? The Celtic Folk Show started about 23 years ago. The Connolly Association was still going when I started my program, the Celtic Folk Show, uh, Val Noon. Uh, other people were doing the Connolly Association program by then. So after Seamus died and during his illness, a woman called 
Phyllis Manzi and myself kept the Connolly Association program going by reading information that was sent to us by Father Des Wilson, who was a, a wonderful activist on behalf of the Republican people in Belfast. But then after a time, Jim Cusack and, and Val Noon and other people took over. Did you get a chance over any of those years to go to Ireland? <laughs> I've been to Ireland seven times, but not during that time. My children were still quite young then, so I didn't start going to Ireland until, I don't know, about 10, 12 years ago, and I've been seven times since then. Certainly, I don't think I'll ever go again since COVID has happened to us and there's so much uncertainty. I, I'm not willing to be that far away from home again. I'll never go again, I don't think. So knowing Seamus and all the others, did that bring you out into the community itself? Did you then take part? Oh, in yeah, yeah. In yeah, what ways? Yeah, most definitely. There were lots of social things then, particularly about, you know, the musics. And, you know, I hadn't been aware of it because I hadn't grown up with it, but it's a huge population of Irish people here uh, and an incredible pocket of traditional Irish musicians who were handing on the music. Two families, names that come to mind, of course, are the Fitzgeralds and the Morans, Billy Moran, and the Fitzgeralds were a large family, but the two main musicians that I spent a lot of time, and they're both still with us. Unfortunately, Billy Moran no longer is, but yeah, I spent a lot of time, mainly in pubs, listening to to music in a system that or a way of listening to the music or a way of sharing the music that we call the session so a session is a group of musicians playing tunes it's where a musician who's already competent as a musician would come along and learn new tunes so you don't go there to learn the instrument you already have an understanding even though it can be fairly minor of the instrument but you come along to learn tunes and to share tunes and it's I've had the most wonderful times over the years having a few glasses of wine and listening to the music and and also the song that there aren't as many songs as there are tunes but depending on who's present at the session there can be some really good too, quite often rebel songs. Yeah, I was going to say that resistance going back many, many, many centuries. Yeah, and a lot of the Irish history that I know, I've learned from the, from the actual songs. Even some of the tunes ha- have names that, you know, identify politically. But yeah, there's, there's so many stories in the songs because it's, you know, it's an oral tradition in many ways. Well, the music is definitely an oral tradition. The music is handed on orally. It's not written down. It's not uh, recorded in a formal sort of way. It's just handed down. But, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've learned lots of, lots of interesting things from the songs. So, in a sense, when you started your Celtic folk show, or the Celtic folk show, it was going to be a mixture of music, culture... Resistance, mm. is that what you wanted? Yeah, definitely. I prefer to say as little as possible. It's, well, it's a music program anyway, as I explained to people. But I, I choose songs that will tell the story that I, I, I want to be told. 
and I love being able to, I mean, I have a huge uh, collection of what I call my favourite songs. When I say it, I think it's, it, it's a laugh because it's just so many of my favourite songs that tell the stories that I want people to understand. One sort of genre or one particular type of song is a song about the potato famine. There's lots of songs from the time of the potato famine. Now, the potato famine was in the 1840s in Ireland. And, yeah, there's lots of songs that reference that and tell the story. And that's something that we will never forget because it had such a huge impact on the the population, so many people had to leave, the ones who survived it had to leave to go to America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South America. And I think that reflects when you think about where the singers come from over the last decades. They're from those countries like America, England, Australia. Their ancestors yeah. came from Ireland. Yeah, definitely. That's the thing, like Irish music has influenced influenced the music of America, USA I'm referring to when I say America, incredibly, but also Canada. There's a lot of traditional Irish music and Scots music in in New Zealand. Traditional Irish music, of course, travelled with the people because the the, the people travelled so far and, of course, they... They took the music with them, and um, it's a wonderful thing. There's so much of it throughout the world, and the, the world of folk music. Well, for the last years, and your main focus, apart from Ireland, has been the brutal treatment by the Australian government of asylum seekers, but also Palestinians, Palestine. Let's talk about mm-hmm. Palestine and how you became involved in protesting against the treatment of Palestinians? I became aware of Palestine and I I really don't know when that was. It's just there. I don't know at what point it sort of became part of my life. I can actually remember meeting a traditional Irish musician who came to Melbourne. We knew each other on Facebook and, and he told me he was coming to visit Melbourne and the connection he and I had other than on Facebook, other than our interest in traditional Irish music, was of course the plight of the people in Palestine. And I can remember saying to him, when I'm talking, when I'm meeting a new person and we're talking about politics, to me the litmus test of whether or not I agree with, them, whether or not I'm even willing to be friendly with them and spend time with them, is their views on Palestine. And if they, they don't have strong views on Palestine that coincide with mine, well, then I'm not really interested in um, spending any more time with them. Yeah, his name is Vincent Doherty. I can remember saying to him, you know, to me, the litmus test for a true left-wing person is Palestine. Where did you actually find out? Were you listening to CR? Because we've had a... Palestinian program for many years that not the current one but we've had one before that or was it just out in the street talking to people it's actually Facebook there's a lot of people throughout the world who who are pro-Palestinian and very active in lots of other social media platforms that I don't use the Palestinian people themselves are 
very active on Facebook. I've become friends, in inverted commas, with, with two different families in Gaza through Facebook who I send money to each month from myself but also from another friend who gives me money and each month we send money to these two families in Gaza. That's what I do. And I, and I share as much as I can interesting stories or stories that are telling the plight of the people in Palestine because, as you well know, um, the mainstream media don't tell the truth about Palestine as they don't tell the truth about anything, really, other than may, maybe the weather and the time. Can you talk a little bit about those two families, what you've learnt and their experiences? One of them, interestingly, I first became friendly with the husband, or he approached me, and, you know, I knew I was could be a scam but I know now that it's not and and then I for a while I didn't hear from the husband and then the wife contacted me and the husband was unwell and I still don't understand what the his illness was because of course English isn't their language and they use a translator to, to communicate with us and you know things get lost in translation so often um, but that family, I think there's four children, a daughter and, and three sons, and, and the, the wife sends photos of them and the small amount of money that we send. I get a lot of personal satisfaction out of knowing that such terrible wrongs are being done to the people of Palestine, but there's a huge worldwide movement where people are able to send money and that we can make... a ever so slight difference to their lives but we can help them practically because we're sending them money and clearly that helps them to buy food or whatever but also it must help them from a a mental point of view a spiritual point of view of them knowing that there are people worldwide who actually know what is being done to them is wrong and, and are willing to support them. As I said, your current great concern is asylum seekers. Did it begin with you, like for many of us, standing out in the streets at a rally? Is that is that what happened with you? My first protesting for asylum seekers or refugees was the Palm Sunday rally that is organised by many different religious organisations every year on Palm Sunday. I started going to that and then again through Facebook I became aware that there was a protest outside a motel in Brisbane, Kangaroo Point, where people protested once a week against the indefinite detention I already knew that there were medevac refugees being kept in the Manta Hotel on Bell Street and a, a fantastic woman activist, Kim Matazek, started a, a protest outside Mantra Hotel every evening. And at first I, I went there just a couple of nights a week because I had other responsibilities around that time. And then after... Um, the government moved the medevac refugees from the Mantra Hotel in Bell Street to the Park Hotel and Swanson Street in Carlton. I, I continued protesting and, and at that stage I started 
trying to go every day if I could. And over about 15 months, I probably went there five out of the seven evenings of the week to protest. Were you able to contact any of the men in that hotel or prison? Because I know that there was some form of contact between protesters on the street. Yes, there's a lot of contact with both protesters on the street but also people who just worked online as well with the, the men in Park Prison, as I call it. I did become friendly with one in particular who he... Oh, or a couple actually, but they contacted me. There were a number of men who each day would be at the window so we we could see them. And yeah, a couple of them contacted me. So through Facebook, I, I used to um, have contact with them. We would also speak on the phone when we were there. That was a big thing actually, particularly with the young women talking to the men inside the prison. But since so many of them on, on the outside I realised that there were so many more in there who were aware of us being on the street and protesting but never came to the windows, never made their their presence known. Um, at least 10 men have approached me and thanked me for my presence there and they're men that, you know, I had no idea. I, I didn't know them. I know them now, but I didn't know them then. When I was protesting... I never really felt that it would make much difference in changing the government's mind about the the cruel treatment of these men. My main purpose in being there to protest was so that those men knew that I cared about them and I now know that they did understand that and although they were being treated so poorly that they knew that there were many, many people in Australian society who cared about them. Is it true that the government, through the Immigration Department, actually boarded up those windows so that you couldn't see them in? Yeah, they put a film on the windows so that, yeah, we couldn't see them. Yes, definitely. That's, yeah, that's... I think it's Border Force who did that. The, the, the level of cruelty, deliberate cruelty inside that place was amazing. Another thing, that, another example of the deliberate cruelty was that the men watched television, of course, and the, the SBS TV channel was reasonably good at covering what was going on, showed the men the support that they had for, from us protesters and from others, so took away the SBS TV channel from the access that the men had to TV. Who was the first man that you got to know once he was released? Because over the past while they released them slowly one by one until now I think they're all gone, but who was the first one that you were able to contact once he was outside? Actually, the one that I've had the most to do with from the point of view of supporting him wasn't even in Park. He was in Mitre at Broadmeadows. I got to meet him one day in Lincoln Square, which is the park opposite, Park Prison. He was talking to another activist. He'd just been released a few days earlier and he had a lengthy conversation with another activist that I didn't really hear 
but that at the end of their conversation, Jenny, the other activist, said to this young man, yes, we'll, we'll find someone to help you with that. And what he needed help with was that he had a medical appointment on the Monday morning, but no way of, he was staying in, in accommodation in the back blocks of reservoir, in the, out in the industrial area of reservoir, and he needed to keep a, a medical appointment with a, a doctor at Panch Medical Centre, which is opposite where Mantra Hotel was. And so that, I heard that conversation and I said, oh, what do you need help with? You know, maybe I can help. So that's what I started taking this young man to medical appointments and I've been doing that for the last 15 months and supporting him in, in lots of different ways. He came and stayed with me for a while. And when you say release, the government's not very generous, is it, for these men who have suffered so much? They get very little, don't they, once they are released? They get next to nothing from the government. But when they're released, they can either be released on what they call a bridging visa E, and clearly the E stands for exit. On a bridging visa E, they are entitled to get a job if they're able, but keep in mind that they've been tortured for well, between seven and, and nine years. So, you know, many of them are, well, they're medivac refugees anyway, so they're all unwell in varying degrees. So on a bridging visa, they can work. The only thing they get from the government is a Medicare card. They issue the visas for between five and six months. We're never really sure what determines the, the length of the, the visa. And one of the problems with that is once their visa runs, card runs out too and that, that can cause problems but we're used to that now so we know to um, reapply for it. The other condition that they're released on is into community detention. It's not, not actually a visa, it's community detention. In community detention they're given an absolute pittance of an amount of money, I can't remember what it is but you know you, you wouldn't see the dog on it but they are given accommodation they don't have to pay for accommodation, but they are not allowed to work. They live very lonely lives. There's a group of them, one I became very close to, who is now living in Adelaide, and he's a very intelligent, beautiful young man, and he's bored out of his brain. He'd love to be able to work, but he can't. And I'd imagine the accommodation isn't up to much, and... Yeah, the accommodation itself, well, particularly in the, the, the men in Adelaide I know, I've been there, I went to visit them in January. Uh, the accommodation's quite okay, actually. It's just a fair way out of the city. So it, it's the north of the city. Um, it's, it's not a bad area, it's okay. But when you have very little money, it's so little that you can do to amuse yourself. That's the problem as I see it. And, of course, a lot of these young men had careers before they sought asylum? They had a good education, most of them? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some of them did, yeah. The ones I've been mixing with came more from rural areas and, no, they they lived fairly simple lives where they were. The one I'm really close to who, who's living in Adelaide when I asked him, having known him for many months, when I asked him why he had to, you know, had to leave his his home of Nepal, he said that 
the left-wing militia were, were recruiting young men and, you know, he, he wouldn't have survived. He would have been recruited into their army and he wouldn't have survived. He had no choice but to leave Nepal. And they've lost over a decade of their lives. They haven't been able to connect with families. I suppose they have been able to connect in one way, but actually physically connecting with their families for all that time. The impact of that on their lives. Yes, definitely. And, for instance, there's one I'm aware of who's been out for quite a few months now, and he, he desperately wants to see his mother again. He knows he can't leave this country. If, if he was to leave this country, he's on a community visa. If he was to leave this country, they, they'd never let him back. They know that. So many times when I've been with, you know, one of these young men, he, he'll get a phone call and it will be his mother. And it's, it's so lovely to meet the mothers and, and to see them, you know, talking, communicating with their mothers. And, and, and I think their mothers are always happy to see me too and see that. Someone, you know, is caring, is willing to spend time with their son and, and caring for them. Because there's an incredible number of people who do the most amazing work supporting these men. Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison have subjected these men to such such cruelty, but there are so many other people who, through their efforts, have shown the men that, they are cared for, will always be cared for for as long as they can stay here. And, of course, what we hope... I was thinking about it today. What I really want from Mr Albanese and the Labor government is that make a decision that these Medivac refugees, who we've had the most contact with, are allowed to stay in this country if they want to as a way of showing them good faith that, you know, because they've been treated so badly, I think it's the least that we owe them. There are some who don't want to stay here. There are some who feel very negative towards Australia and Australians and wish to go elsewhere and hopefully they'll go to New Zealand. It's such a different culture though for those young men from where they're from. They're from Asia, Southern Asia. Did you meet any from the north of Africa or are they mainly Middle Eastern and I know I've actually become quite close to a two from Somalia. There are quite a few from Africa, but most of them, most of the Medivac refugees that I've had contact with are either from Iran or Persia, depending on how they identify as Iranian or Persian, and from, from Bangladesh, in, interestingly, many from Bangladesh. Finally, Anne, how has it changed your life? It's given me an incredible feeling of fulfilment. You know, I've been an activist for a long time, for many years, but always my activism was abstract. I, 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 it's the first time I've been able to, to meet and spend time with, hug even, the people who are the subject of my activism. And I just, like, it's incredibly stressful, um, the things that I have to bear witness and, and the men are so grateful. And particular women that have worked with you in these last little while, you've connected with a, a great number of very special women who helped you along? Yes. 
Most definitely, that's the thing. There's a partic- one particular woman that comes to mind who has been working both in the paid capacity but also many hours and, and many years in the volunteer voluntary capacity. This particular woman has worked with refugees for 20 years and continues to work with refugees. There are some absolutely amazing Mainly women. Uh, there are some men too, but I don't know why it is, but most of the activists seem to be women. Some incredible people. Such a privilege to know them and, and to spend time with them. And also incredible men who have survived so much over those up to nine and a half years. That's the thing. I remember the day I came back from Adelaide was when... The tennis player was in Park Hotel and, and my friend and I called in there to be part of the protest and, and just to catch up with friends. Someone who I'd never met before spoke to us and, and thanked us for our activism and, and I just looked at him and said, don't thank me, thank the men for staying alive. And that was Anne McAllister, presenter of the Catholic Folk Show here on 3CR at 3pm every Tuesday. Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Beyond the Bars started in 2002 and this year marks 21 years on air. So tune in at 11am each day during NADOC from Monday the 4th of July to Friday the 8th of July for the Beyond the Bars 2022 broadcast. For more information, head to our website 3cr.org.au backslash beyondthebars. For me, jam donuts bring back memories of Saturday afternoon football matches. But in Lisbon, northern New South Wales, still coping with the catastrophic floods and their aftermath, the words of a smiling pharmacist says it all. I'll sell you some aspirin if you like, but if you want to feel better, I suggest you go to the bakery. They have jam donuts, date scones and much more. And that's what Professor Emeritus Stuart Rees did recently during his day-night visit to Lismore. Stuart, I'm sure over the years you would have visited Lismore. What are your recollections of there before the latest and most catastrophic flight? I think it was a bustling, interesting city, amazing bookshop, or bookshops, choice of lots of cafes, it seemed to be active, optimistic, and, you know, on the move, as it were. It had been flooded before, but, um, you know, there was a kind of we shall overcome attitude that was different this time. What did you find when you were there recently in terms of destruction, damage, and just how people were feeling? The fact 
that one third or more of the places in the in the city in the town are boarded up. In other words, they're dead. Nothing's going on. And then there's a sense of um, well, mostly uncertainty. If we deal with uncertainty, then um, we feel powerless. And I think it's that the the uncertainty coupled to powerlessness was the dominant um, dominant feeling. And this is how long after the flood? I suppose we're about um, six weeks away from the worst of the flood. Because then there's the expectation that it could easily happen again. That's the problem, isn't it? Because the place where it is, as you said, there's been floods before. I was there once and they, they have the list on the, you know, the mark on the walls to show where it went to last time, but this time is just horrendous. So it is going to happen again with climate change. What do the people say about what they think about moving? I think the people who have the means to move can do so. The people who don't have the means, who, who have no insurance, who live in houses that nobody would dream of buying, they are marooned, as it were. And... Um, Unless there was some massive, uh, massive project of development for all the citizens or for all the vulnerable ones, then there's no obvious solution in, 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 in sight. In a way, the word solution presupposes that we, go, that we might find an aspirin. But when it comes to addressing a crisis like this, you have to move one, you have to have what I call small victories. You have, and people are ready for that. People are ready. They don't expect the magic wand to come, but they want uh, the sense of what the first step and the second step is towards a specific goal. Well, has that first step happened for some people? Well, yeah, in a way, the, you know, the account I gave in that article about the, the therapeutic effect of being in the bakery with lots and lots of other people with a lot of coffee and a lot of cakes, and uh, particularly jam donuts that looked as effective as um, antidepressants, that communication, that dialogue, that conversation is crucial. It's always, it's, it's every day's first step in a way because it combats loneliness, it shares ideas, it's, it's a means of problem solving. Without it, if you, people are stay isolated and only totally dependent on the hope that um, to some service will appear, that not, progress won't be made that way. Well, a service will appear. Where are the services? I looked on the internet while I was there to see what, if I was feeling unwell in, in Lisbon, what services could I get, for, particularly for mental health. Well, there's lots advertised. Whether they've got the staff, whether you could make an appointment if they did have the staff, that was unknown to me. If I was doing what I used to do 50 years ago, I'd I think I'd be arrogant enough to say I know how to solve this problem, but I'm not in that position anymore. The services depend on a whole range of people in order to enable people to plan to plan to have a, a small victory. And it may be it may be physical. It may be that the the workmen in the different shops that were being opened were doing as much for people's mental health as a psychiatrist could. 
that communication between the you know the people who are doing the physical repairs between the people people who are being who are doing the body and mind repairs they're all the they're all in the same team as far as I'm concerned. Well, the people that are doing the physical repairs are they locals or are they coming from outside the I, town? I, could, I wouldn't be sure. I, I suspect they're locals. I don't know whether they had enough um, sufficient tradespeople. I imagine this. I mean, in the early days, there were so many volunteers coming to help. But whether they've got all the tradespeople and the um, and the physical means to do the necessary repairs, I'm not. I don't. I couldn't answer that question. Did you manage to speak to people one to one and ask them what mechanisms they have for coping in such a stressful situation? Yeah, I, I did. I mean, the membership of, diff- of different support groups is crucial. It's a bit like. You know, me having a chat with you. I mean, it's meant to be a radio interview, but it's therapeutic for me. Uh, whether it's therapeutic for you and your listeners, God only knows. So, you know, the people in the pharmacy were kind of, A, they were humorous. I mean, I went to buy some aspirins, even though I didn't know any, didn't need any, because I, I wanted to talk to them. There were half a dozen staff in a, in a pharmacy that was mostly in the dark. And they were the ones who said, look, if you really need to feel good this morning, go down to the bakery. That was, you know, that was like a referral, a referral to a good service. They weren't saying, look, here's an appointment to see this this doctor or this psychiatrist. They said, no, go down to the bakery. Did people speak at all about climate change? Oh, yeah, the people I met with acknowledged that um, this was... um, that you can't separate climate change and health programs. Climate change and threats to health are the same thing. Climate change is a major health problem. It poses a major health problem. Yeah, that's very, very clear. If you're, if you're drowned between, um, four, beneath 14 metres of water, then you have a health problem. Did you visit other areas outside of Lismore? Because I'd imagine Lismore wasn't the only place in trouble? No, 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 lots of places. I mean, I know Mullumbimby quite well, which is in almost or was almost in as much trouble. I mean, there the message I got was that they would say the mud is worse than the water. In other words, if you want to start again, the water can be swept out, but you can't easily get rid of the mud. But look, it's all relative and comparative. We're now making observations about 14 million people displaced in Bangladesh by massive floods, tens of thousands of homes destroyed. That doesn't help the people of Lismore immediately, but it it keeps in mind that this is an interdependent phenomenon that uh, we have to address if life on Earth would still be possible. And we'd also got to remember that years and years ago, the scientists and others were predicting that just this would happen with climate change. Correct. People living and, near and in, in Australia, but elsewhere. In Australia, we've had to put, out with, put up with these moronic climate deniers, largely from the coalition and the, the National Party. I mean, they've been ignorant, irresponsible people. They've postponed, they, they've enabled us to postpone for, for 10 years taking this threat seriously. Even a major party like the Labour Party that's still in the thrall of the fossil fuel industry has some, some lessons to learn.
My last question about Lismore was, Stuart, when you went to the bakery, did you choose a jam donut or did you have a date scone? Uh, I had the jam donut and my wife had the date scone. I enjoyed the chatter with the um, black uniformed, or the dark uniformed wait, young waitresses who, who seemed to be enthusiastic and energetic. That was helpful too. You know, they smiled and they laughed and they gave you a jam donut quickly. Not like the surgery I'd just been to when I waited for an hour for very little to happen. I'd just like to ask you before you go, Stuart, about the situation for Julian Assange at the moment and what appears to be inaction by Albanese, but we don't really know what's, what's going on behind the scenes, <laughs> do we? Sure. No, we don't. Look, I don't criticise him for that because I'm not sure that anybody knows whether him make... I mean, he's, he's made the clearest statement that he could by saying enough is enough, this has to end. What bugs me is not whether Albanese is being slow, but why, why there are still 120 federal members of parliament who don't seem to be interested in doing anything about this. I mean, there's about 40 who signed up to a, to a petition and a campaign to, to free Julian Assange. But that means there's over 100 more who don't seem to know about it, including my local MP. And public consciousness about this, I mean, it seems to be a problem. I and mean, we sort of stereotype this brave young man. He's not, he's not young anymore. This brave man has been stereotyped and it's being unusual, even odd, Public consciousness should should be outright universally outraged about what is happening, and outraged against the British government. Well, yeah, outraged about the the massive cruelty of the American government, the British government, and the years of cowardice of the Australians. I mean, it's not good enough to say that he's to, to, to say he's getting the usual consular advice. That seems to be uh, nonsense. I mean, who are these consular officials? They wouldn't know as, frankly, they wouldn't know as much as I knew about the courts and the prisons and um, the administration of justice. That you could, <laughs> you frequently had to apply apply a blowtorch to officials to get something done. That's not consular assistance. The intervention should be vigorous, energetic, and committed to justice. That's what the intervention on Julian's behalf should be about. Well, there was a, an intervention for Chelsea Manning, wasn't there? Well, event, I mean, Chelsea Manning served in the federal penitentiary until President Obama pardoned her and released her. Now, Julian Assange, who's not an American citizen, has been prosecuted and pursued for over 10 years. He's been held in, in this wretched British prison for almost three years. And he's been convicted of no offence. Then some bright spark in the Justice Department in America concocts the idea that he should be sentenced to 175 years in prison. Do they think that 200 years is the average, the the, the average age of, of of Australian citizens? Is that what they think? The whole thing is a is an international farce. That's Andrew Wilkie's judgment, uh, not mine. And not only an international fast, but the, the treatment that he and others 
are getting in Belmarsh and the descriptions of the place that if he does go to the US, he's going to be kept in, it's beyond belief. It's beyond belief because cruelty as policy has been central to the way these dark states behave. I mean, America, the fact that America loves prisons, they love prisons, they love punishment, they love killing one another in the streets, it's still referred to as a civilization. Well, it's a civilization of some kind, but it's not very civil. The fact that the British, I mean, British justice is another problem. There's no such thing as justice. It's a, it's a massive piece of theater run disproportionately by rich, powerful people dressed up as judges. And I hope that, you know, that judgment, I mean, and I've spent years of my life, as you know, in the Central Criminal Court, making those observations. Okay, well, Liz Moore, Julian Assange, final words? Well, final word, next topic is about what do we do, how do we respond to the war in Ukraine? We'll talk about that next time, because... With this, I'll shortly send you publicity about the People's Forum on the war in Ukraine. Uh, in other words, what do we do about peace with justice in in, um, in Ukraine? How do we how do we sing the Beatles songs about justice? You know, or or, or imagining all, all the world forgetting about war and violence. That's the next topic. Good o. Thanks, Stuart. Okay, Jan. Good to talk to you. Jam Donuts and Date Scones with Professor Emeritus Stuart Race. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. We now travel to Europe and next refocus on the French elections, the second round which were held earlier in the month. And two months after, he was re-elected as president. Emmanuel Macron has lost control of the French National Assembly following a strong performance by a left alliance and the far right. European elections are not a usual focus of Tuesday home time, but we give an exception for France due to its impact on Pacific nations still under the colonial thumb of France. And I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, who knows all the facts and fears. But first, Nick, comments I've read. The election has left French politics fragmented, situation unpredictable, and situation represents a risk to our culture. You've been looking at the results. What's your opinion? The elections for the French National Assembly, France's legislature, were a significant setback for Emmanuel Macron, the French president. He was re-elected for his second term uh, in April this year and, uh, you know, had a, a, an effective defeat of uh, Marine Le Pen, the leader of the extreme right-wing uh, Rassemblement National. That's the national rally. It's the, what used to be the National Front. And so, you know, Macron was riding high uh, when, he, when he won his election. But, you know, over the last five years of his presidency, Macron has really alienated a whole range of constituencies in France, particularly amongst working people, amongst the trade union movement, but also people uh, in rural and regional areas, as was shown with the, what was called the Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Vest movement, with people who felt alienated from the sort of austerity policies he's, he was advancing. So there was a, a, 
a range of opposition mobilised for these legislative elections and Macron lost his majority. The party he created in 2017 uh, called La République en Marche, the Republic on the Move, was uh, the dominant force between 2017 and this year. He had a majority uh, within the National Assembly and the Senate. Um, his image at the beginning of being neither left nor right um, was uh, a significant part of his propaganda and he'd seen off the two major parties that had dominated French politics for decades, the Socialist Party, the main Social Democratic Party, the Republican Party, Le Republicain, which is the main centre-right party. Both of those were crushed by his 2017 election. What we've seen, however, is a polarisation of politics and Macron failed to get a majority in the National Assembly, which puts a significant crimp on his uh, government and on uh, the future of uh, what he can do over the next few years. Well, where did the votes go? Well, the votes split in a, in a range of ways, and really no one has a commanding majority. His party uh, joined with a couple of other smaller groups to form uh, the Ensemble Coalition, the Together Coalition, to run for these elections. And he got the largest number of seats in the, in the Assembly, 246 seats, but the magic number is 289. Now, that's half the, uh, the 577 seat in uh, Parliament. So he, he got less than the majority, and that leaves him in a terrible bind because two other forces had major surges. On the extreme right, Marine Le Pen's Rassemblement National boosted its numbers significantly. Previously, it had 15 people in the legislature. Now it has 89 on the latest figures that have been, uh, been published. So the far right had a significant surge despite Le Pen's uh, defeat in the presidential elections. She won a lot of ground with her grassroots campaigning against Macron's austerity policies. And she toned down the racism, the neo-fascism, some would say, of, of the uh, Rassemblement Party to uh, a sort of campaign around issues of cost of living, uh, issues of uh, energy prices, particularly because of the war in Ukraine, the, uh, the issues of uh, Macron's elitist, uh, technocratic style of governing. You know, he's often called the King of France because of his sort of aristocratic, uh, patrician attitude to ordinary people. And so she won a lot of support from, uh, from people who were pissed off at the government, particularly too after a couple of years of pandemic mandates and vaccines and so on, all the same sort of stuff we've seen in Australia. On the left, however, there was a much more successful mobilisation and uh, a really important coalition came together under Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, the leader of the left-wing uh, party La France Insoumise, which is the name France Unbowed. He created a four-party coalition that in the end won uh, 142 seats. So it came second after uh, Macron's grouping, but uh, not enough uh, to meet the hopes that people had that the left might surge towards uh, a majority in its own right. And uh, still a substantial bloc, a massive improvement for the, uh, a more left-wing political program, but uh, uh, not enough to take on Macron's uh, situation. Are these coalitions likely to stick together? The coalition that, um, on the left has already had a couple of uh, um, debates internally. There are four parties that make up uh, what was called the New Environmental and Social Political Union, uh, NUPES, 
um, in French. So Mélenchon's uh, La France Insoumise, the old Socialist Party, Social Democratic Party in our terms, like Labour Party, the Greens, and the remnants of the French Communist Party. However, those four parties stood together for the elections, but they have uh, not been able to agree to form one common opposition bloc in the new parliament. Uh, and so, uh, although La France Insoumise is the largest of all those groupings, the Socialists did pretty poorly, holding uh, 20-odd seats, the Greens holding only a small number, um, they've not formed together as one bloc. So on some questions, Macron might be able to get a few votes here and there from um, sections of, say, the Socialist Party, but on other issues, uh, he'll face a very concerted challenge. Nonetheless, the great strength of the electoral campaign was its grassroots nature, where um, the, the NUPES bloc went out door-knocking, mobilising, and tying itself to trade union struggles, to community struggles, working people's campaigns around homelessness, around cost of living, around uh, uh, human rights, LGBTQI rights. There's a whole range of campaigns that have been crystallised around this movement, and it's seen a major surge on the left. And you've seen similar things with Bernie Sanders' campaign uh, to a certain extent in the United States. Uh, different politics, but uh, nonetheless, you've seen a similar sort of surge in that way. In a funny way, you know, the Greens did, did well here in Australia uh, with the Senate campaign that they had. But this is much more left-wing program in France. It isn't, however, the majority. And um, at the same time, the surge that we've seen on the far right is incredibly worrying, um, both for people within France, but more broadly for uh, the struggles across Europe. Who did the people in the rural areas vote for? It's a real mishmash. You know, when you look at the, the electoral maps, there are dots of colour all over the place. And this was true uh, for France's overseas colonies, overseas dependencies in every ocean of the world. Some people voted, um, you know, for, for Macron and his coalition, uh, the Ensemble coalition. Others voted for the left. A few voted for the far right. There are some bands. Uh, you know, Le Pen's uh, neo-fascist movement has had strong support in the south around Marseille and other parts of the south, Nice and, and other areas. Um, but she also won ground in the uh, industrial uh, rust belt of the uh, northeast of France, uh, the areas over nearer to Germany, which have suffered from uh, all the, the globalisation that's been, uh, you know, the, the effects that are still lingering from the 2008 economic crisis many years ago for industrial areas. And that's been true in the United States, in Britain, and to a certain extent in Australia. So she's picked up votes from disgruntled people um, who are angry at um, the mainstream parties, be they left or right, so-called, angry at Macron for the repressive nature of his politics and his austerity neoliberal policies that he's been promoting for the last five years. And so she's picked up even some disgruntled Socialist Party, uh, Communist Party voters from the past. And a similar phenomenon was seen with uh, Boris Johnson's uh, vote in the so-called Red Wall in the north of England. People who feel really... Um, disengaged from the technocrats who are running government in the capital and who feel that their concerns about transformation of the economy, transformation of energy systems, that the impact of austerity policies on health and education services and so on. Look, it's a global phenomenon where people are pissed off with mainstream politics and uh, you're seeing uh, uh, that uh, centrist parties are facing a major challenge. Well, let's look more at the Pacific, Nick. 
I'm sure that you've done the numbers. It's been a really significant shift in our part of the world. Um, there are three French Pacific dependencies, um, as we've talked about on the program before, New Caledonia, French Polynesia, and Wallace and Futuna. In um, all three places in the uh, um, French uh, presidential election in April, Macron came out ahead. Uh, that was a significant uh, shift from when he was elected in 2017, where, um, say, in New Caledonia, for the presidential election in 2017, half the population who bothered to vote voted for Marine Le Pen, feeling that her right-wing, extreme right-wing, nationalist sort of stance would protect the people of European heritage who want to maintain New Caledonia as part of the French Republic. That changed in this year's presidential elections held in April, where Macron swept all three French Pacific territories. However, elsewhere in the French overseas dependencies, um, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who ran also for the presidency, didn't win, but did remarkably well. And uh, Mélenchon came top of the polls in six of the 11 overseas dependencies. So you can see in other places in the Caribbean, in the Indian Ocean colonies, there's a, a mood for change. And that was shown for the, uh, the weekend before last for the... Uh, legislative elections. The most amazing change was in French Polynesia. Macron gained the backing of the governing uh, president, Edouard Fritsch, uh, who's been a conservative anti-independence leader, but um, been in power for a number of years with a strong majority in the French local assembly. He uh, gave his party, Tapura, gave enormous support to Macron for the presidential run, and his candidates um, were backed by Macron for the uh, legislative elections. In a surprising challenge, however, pro-independence candidates won through to the second round of voting in New Caledonia and French Polynesia. And surprisingly, in French Polynesia, to everyone, all three pro-independence candidates won in French Polynesia. So for the first time ever in history, three members of the Tabini Huiratira party, which is a a pro-independence party led by a guy called Oscar Temeru, long-time pro-independence anti-nuclear leader, you know, the old lion of, of uh, French Polynesian politics. Temeru's people won the three seats. Uh, previously, they'd only ever had one person in Paris in the French National Assembly, a guy called Moatai Brotherson, who won in 2017. It was a major breakthrough in 2017 that a pro-independence person could represent French Polynesia in the national parliament, this time, they won three out of three. It stunned the local uh, governing party, Tupura, um, headed by President Fritsch. It stunned many commentators, and it um, really stunned Macron because, you know, the, that, that mood of change. New Caledonia, the two loyalist deputies were returned, but the FLNKS fought through to the second round in both constituencies. New Caledonia has two seats in the National Assembly, and although they didn't win, the FLNKS advanced to um, the second round voting. And uh, that's significant because um, the Kanak uh, population, the main people who back independence, are a minority in French Polynesia, in New Caledonia, and so um, it was a major change. So that sort of sets the, the scene for Macron working in our part of the region. 
at a time that um, Prime Minister Albanese is planning to rebuild relations with France um, that were ruptured by the 2021 AUKUS agreement. Let's just talk about French Polynesia for a few more minutes with three pro-independence candidates. What can they do in the Assembly, three people? Well, they've been backed by the um, new ecological and social um, political union that uh, is led by Mélenchon. They've announced that they'll sit with that grouping in the parliament, so they're part of a 142-member bloc, which is not insignificant. What Moatai, I've interviewed Moatai Brotherson, Steve Shalou, and um, Timothée Legayak, the three candidates, um, on the Islands Business website. I'm a correspondent for Islands Business magazine, if people are interested to hear their views. There's an interview in our news section that's online at islandsbusiness.com. They're very hopeful that they can use it as a platform to raise issues of um, concern for the independence movement, issues about the governance of the country, about issues about sovereignty and independence, broader issues about the economic impacts on working people from the government's policies. Um, you know, Tavini Huarotiro has always been a, a party on the broad left. It's uh, in the past had uh, diplomatic ties with the Socialist Party in France, um, so it's always been a progressive party. Uh, it's been very firmly an anti-nuclear party. But having three representatives in Parliament has uh, a, a significant role um, simply because, um, as with every parliament, you can sit on commissions, uh, you can work within parliamentary blocks, and it gives a voice to the pro-independence movement to meet with people in Paris, um, in not only the parliament, but in the social movements, in the trade unions and so on. And um, Moatai Brotherson, over the last five years, has acted almost as a spokesperson, not only for the French Polynesian independence movement, but for the FLNKS, the, the New Caledonian independence movement. And he said proudly that on many occasions, as the only pro-independence representative from Oceania in the French legislature, he's often spoken about issues around New Caledonia and uh, as well as other areas. It also has importance in terms of putting a spoke in Macron's Indo-Pacific policy, because Macron, um, with the support of... Uh, um, anti-independence politicians over many years in the, uh, the French Parliament has been able to claim that he's acting in the interests of the people of the Pacific. So, for example, Macron's announced a major program around research into oceans, presenting it as an environmental thing, but there's a great interest in the exploitation of ocean resources, such as deep seabed minerals, um, oil and gas, deep water oil and gas, and so on. Now, uh, the current senator for French Polynesia, Tevita Rofrich, is a Macronist, uh, uh, a supporter of the current uh, government. He's heading a, a commission into a parliamentary commission to the exploitation uh, of mineral resources. So to have some pro-independence people in the parliament saying, hang on, these ocean resources belong to the Maui people, to the people of Polynesia, not to France that the oceans and waters around French Polynesia, a vast area, 5 million square kilometres of exclusive economic zone, belong to people of the Pacific, not to the France. French creates a, a platform for them to argue the case in Paris because, uh, you know, the, the overseas colonies are largely invisible in the French media. Um, you know, people just don't know much about what's going on in the French Empire 
And uh, so to have a representative in Paris speaking from a parliamentary platform just uh, gives them an opportunity to talk to a wider audience than they'd normally have. And where does this leave the pro-independence push in New Caledonia? Well, the FLNKS uh, uh, are disappointed that they didn't win a, a seat. They uh, had a relatively low turnout. I think people are just tired of voting in New Caledonia. They've had you know, a referenda. They've had three referenda in the last six years. They had parliamentary elections. They've had you know presidential votes, legislative votes, a really bad surge of COVID late last year. People, I think, uh, from discussions I've had are just tired. Having said that, there's real unity in the independence movement moving forward. Uh, historically, there's been a lot of differences between uh, the major parties within the FLNKS. It's a coalition of four parties. Um, similarly, there's a number of smaller parties outside the main independence coalition, like the Parti Travailliste, the Labour Party, which is a left-wing party based on the trade unions uh, that sits outside the main independence coalition. However, they formed all the pro-independence parties, formed a, a common coalition to work together for these legislative elections. They all agreed on joint candidates, and um, one came from Union Caledonian, the largest party, another from Palika, the second largest party. The two alternate candidates both came from, one from the trade union movement, one from the Labour Party. So there was a really united push uh, to work together. And that will hold them in good stead as they move towards negotiations with France. You know, the outgoing government uh, under then overseas minister Sebastien Lecornu set an artificial deadline of 18 months. This was back in December last year. He said, you've got 18 months to come up with a new political agreement. Now, we've already, coming up to July, wasted six or seven months of that 18-month artificial deadline. And the Canucks have always said, listen, we're not going to sign away our country according to a deadline you set. The significance of the current crisis in Paris for the Macron administration is they aren't organised to push ahead with what policies they want for New Caledonia. The current uh, overseas minister, Yael Pivet, who was nominated just uh, five weeks ago to take up the position of overseas minister, has just won the seat of President of the National Assembly, which is a, an important position in Paris. But she's going to have to resign her um, uh, ministry if she uh, is finally elected to that seat, which uh, takes place as we're speaking on uh, on Tuesday. And so um, they don't have an overseas minister appointed yet. Uh, and yet negotiations are supposed to start um, to meet this artificial deadline of June next year. So the FLNKS are united. The Conservatives have been divided by uh, uh, differences um, over which you know, who they support on the right. Um, and there's going to be some tough negotiations coming up ahead. The FLNKS has not given up its desire to move towards a sovereign and independent nation. What's going to be really significant is where does Australia stand on this question? The FLNKS is a member of the Melanesian Spearhead Group. That's a five-member alliance of Melanesian countries around us. Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, and the FLNKS make up this sub-regional organization. The MSG is united in support of self-determination for the Kanak people and other supporters of independence. And yet Australia is trying to rebuild relations with Macron. 
Prime Minister Albanese has announced that he's tra- to travel soon to Paris to try and uh, repair the damage caused by the 2021 AUKUS announcement, uh, where people will know, of course, that um, we ditched the French submarine contract uh, with the Naval Group. Um, we've just paid $830 million, thank you very much, of your taxes and mine, to buy nothing from Naval Group. Um, because of the rupture of the contract uh, by the Morrison government. And, um, you know, there's a desperate attempt to rebuild relations with France because France is seen as uh, a Western ally against the perceived rise of China, uh, the concern that China is gaining influence in the Pacific Islands. So it's a major challenge coming up for the Albanese government. Neighbouring Melanesian countries are backing can act self-determination, backing the right of people in New Caledonia to move to a new political status. Are we going to side with France on this question? Now, Macron is wounded by the failure of his um, uh, electoral campaign. His uh, newly appointed Prime Minister, Elizabeth Bourne, uh, offered her resignation. Macron refused it, but he has uh, some difficult challenges ahead to build a majority. The main a conservative party, Les Republicans, says they won't form an alliance with him. They'll vote bill by bill, which means he has to fight every bill. There's a lot of opposition to his agenda around uh, pensions, around uh, reform of the pension system and the retirement age. Uh, his attacks on trade unions, they'll be fierce, resisted by the left uh, within the parliament and outside in the streets. Um, so Macron faces a significant political challenge. Has he got the political capital to take on the Pacific at the same time? It's going to be a very interesting time ahead, and it's a real significant challenge for the Albanese government. They say they want to be the key partner of choice with the Pacific Islands, but are they going to side with our Melanesian neighbours to support decolonisation in the remaining colonies of the Pacific? The people of French Polynesia have just spoken. They've sent three pro-independence people to Paris for the first time ever in history. Which side are we going to choose in the battle that's about to play out between France and its overseas dependencies? Nick, what does all that you've been talking about impact or not on the Pacific Forum meetings that's coming up very soon? Well, it's really striking. Uh, Mid-July, Prime Minister in Albanese, Senator Penny Wong, will be off to Suva in Fiji for the Forum Leaders meeting. I'll be there reporting as well for people who are interested to follow online. There's a, a really significant change. You know, Albanese, I think, will get a very warm welcome in uh, Suva simply because he's not Scott Morrison. Uh, Morrison's behaviour at the 2019 forum uh, in Tuvalu really alienated a lot of people uh, at a personal level, but also the failure of the coalition to do anything about climate change has really... Uh, uh, worn out Australia's welcome. So simply by coming and saying that they're increasing um, Australia's commitment uh, to reduce emissions to 43% by 2030, uh, we'll win them some brownie points. Not enough. Already people outside uh, um, the elected leaderships are, are starting to say, what about your coal mines? Uh, what about a rapid transition away from the use of fossil fuels? So Australia will certainly uh, get a warmer welcome than, than might have been expected but it doesn't solve the fundamental tensions about what's required. 
Um, similarly, there are other issues beyond uh, coal, beyond uh, climate. Uh, the AUKUS agreement and the commitment of the government uh, towards uh, nuclear submarines is a significant issue. Just over the last week um, in Vienna, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons held their first meeting of state parties. Major success with a, a commitment towards uh, a whole program around moving towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. Albanese sent a, a delegation headed by Sue Tilperman, a Labor uh, MP from uh, New South Wales, to uh, uh, observe the meeting, uh, which was a significant diplomatic signal to uh, this growing movement around the region, simply because Aotearoa New Zealand and uh, nine Pacific countries have not only signed but ratified the treaty or acceded to the treaty, uh, calling for the elimination of nuclear weapons, uh, requiring nuclear states to provide uh, assistance to nuclear survivors, environmental remediation, a whole package of activities to address the nuclear threat. And this is a live issue in the Pacific. Uh, Prime Minister Bainimarama of Fiji, who's the current chair of the forum, will host the forum leaders meeting in mid-July, was in Vienna and gave a passionate speech against nuclear weapons, gave a passionate speech about the need for nuclear weapon states to disarm and to reallocate the hundreds of millions of dollars towards the security needs of the Pacific, which is addressing climate change and the adverse effects of global warming. He made the point that uh, the nuclear weapon states spend $100 billion a year on uh, maintaining their nuclear arsenals. Journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. And next stop, the Pacific Forum meeting in Suva. Are you wondering how you can place your support for a 3CR radio program during Radiothon? It's easy. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au. Or you can even come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FVOS. Or simply post us your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 in Collingwood 3066. And thank you for being part of 3CR's annual Radiothon. Three assessments of the recent Summit of the Americas, the ninth. One, an embarrassment for Biden. Two, a fraud. Three, a failure before it started. To look at the history of the Summit of the Americas, I spoke with journalist and author Fred Fuentes. The Summit of the Americas, in technical terms, it's held under the auspices of the Organisation of American States. Now, the Organization of American States is an organization set up during the Cold War, largely run out of Washington. I mean, its offices are in the U.S. It's largely funded by the U.S. But it was an attempt to be a, a sort of a, a continental-wide sort of organization. In the 90s is when the concept of the Summit of the Americas comes about. So that is a, a coming together of the heads of states of all the countries in the region. Uh, and, and it was very much done with the idea of seeing if a free trade of the Americas Agreement, uh, the FTAA, could be agreed to at these summits. The, the sort of the origins of, of the Summit of the, Ameri- of the, of the Americas, auspices by the OAS, aimed 
to bring the, the, the country in line with US neoliberal policy free, free trade agenda. The problem was is, you know, with the rise of, you know, what's sort of commonly being referred to as pink-type governments, or let's say centre-left, left-wing governments in the region, by 2005, the push for the free trade agreement was definitively defeated. Large number of countries, including Brazil, the, the largest uh, in the region, had said they did not want to participate uh, in a free trade agreement. And in many respects, after that, the, the Summit of the Americas very much started to lose its, its sort of reason for being. And even the organisation of American states sort of came to be questioned because we saw in response to or following the defeat of the Free Trade of the Americas Agreement, the signing or the creation of new organisations that sought to unite the region, but without US intervention, interference, involvement. So we had things, for instance, such as the uh, South American, the, sorry, the Union of South American Nations, UNASUR. Uh, we even had CELAC, the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, which was essentially the OAS, but minus the United States and, and Canada. What we saw, though, in more recent years was a, a sort of a pullback towards the OAS, again, reflecting the electoral defeats for the centre-left left in the region, a refocus of US attention to the region, and so an attempt to strengthen the OAS. And so this was the, the sort of framework for how this summit of the Americas came about. You know, this was sort of meant to be a, a sort of a, a repositioning of US in the region. Uh, of course, it wasn't wasn't the same as in the 90s. There wasn't, the idea wasn't here to talk about free trade of the Americas. Instead, it was to sort of consolidate this idea of, of uh, you know, what the US would call the, the, the democratic Americas against those countries that are deliberately excluded from the summer of the Americas, uh, which in this case was uh, Cuba, uh, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. So that's a bit of the history and the immediate context for how this summit comes about. When were the countries of the Caribbean included? They've been included from the start. So they're, they're, they've always been... I mean, obviously, different countries have joined at different times in terms of the organisation of American states. But since the first summit of the Americas in the 90s, the, the Caribbean countries have, have always been included. Uh, of course, it should be mentioned that the one exception is Cuba, because Cuba has been excluded from the organisation of American states uh, essentially since 1960, 61, so shortly after the, the Cuban Revolution. Okay, well, it, as I said at the beginning, it's been called an embarrassment for Biden, a fraud, a failure. What were the main reasons? Or was there more than one reason? In some, the, the, the main reason was that the US thought it could just simply dictate to the region that it would exclude Cuba, Venezuela and Nicaragua and that this would just be accepted and that the rest of the summit would go on as per normal. But in reality, it, it, it provoked a reaction, not so much, a, you know, obviously not a reaction that the summit itself didn't go ahead, but we had, you know, of the 33, four, no, well, you know, obviously minus the countries excluded, but let's have of the roughly 30 countries that could have attended, uh, about a third of them did not send their head of state, so made it very clear that they were deprioritising this summit. Some of them participated in parallel meetings to the summit, Others, you know, made it clear that even though they were attending, that they would um, raise within the Summit of the Americas that they thought it was incorrect to, to exclude countries irrespective of, of their political differences. So, so from, 
where where the US had sort of thought it could easily just consolidate this sort of uh, you know as I said what you know what it refers to as a democratic bloc against perceived dictatorships uh, in the region. Uh, instead, it had a conference where it largely was the the rest of the region telling the US that well no you you, you can't do this if this is meant to be a summit of the Americans then everyone in the Americas uh, should have the right to participate. And of course, within that, the differences can be debated, criticism uh, can be made, but ultimately we're, we're part of the, the same region. And so it's, it's also, to a certain extent, you know, reignited the debate or the discussion about SELAC, you know, about is it necessary to once again reinvigorate the idea of a community of Latin American and Caribbean states without the U.S., and Canada. Now, this, this was proposed, uh, I believe if I recall correctly, it was the Argentinian uh, president, or, or the Ar- Argentina who currently hold the presidency of, of CELAC, who had initially raised the idea of a parallel CELAC summit. Now, that didn't occur. There was not enough consensus amongst the rest of the countries to do that, but you know that's now been put back on the table, as I said, after after a long period of it, you know, having been put off the table and, and a sort of a consolidation of, of the organisation of American states and an attempt by the US to revive the Americas. Once again, the discussion is occurring in the region, you know, about, well, what, what sort of relationship do we want as the Americas? And here, I think, in particular, Mexico, which has a long history of an independent foreign policy of refusing to side with any, any other uh, foreign government. But of course, given its proximity to the US in particular, you know, um, sort of striking out independent foreign policy positions, even though many Mexican governments throughout history have had close relationships with the U.S., but you know, very often refuse to follow U.S. when it comes to international diplomacy, whether that's wars or whether that's exclusion of other countries. Um, now with uh, you know, centre-left, left-wing president uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador in power, then, you know, again, Mexico's taken a firm position and was one of those countries that did not send its, its head of the state and said that he would question you know, its, its continued participation in, in these summits. Uh, if other countries were to be excluded. And with human rights, one of the priorities for this conference, there's a few suspect countries in it, aren't there? The irony is, if, you know, if we want to talk about democracy and dictatorships, which was you know, supposedly what the US sort of framed the summit as being you know, sort of really important about, perhaps some, somewhat ironically that having been hurled under the auspices of the Organisation of American States was really up to dissident voices within and outside the summit to point out the role that the Organisation of American States, and in particular its Secretary-General, Luisa Albadro, had played in, in the event leading up to the, the coup in Bolivia in 2019, and which saw a coup government preside over you know, extreme human rights violations for, for over a year until finally, under popular pressure, uh, elections were forced to be held. Uh, and, and once again, the, the movement towards socialism reaffirmed the majority it had in the country in the ballot boxes and, and regained the presidency. But yeah, this, this sort of the, the shows a complete hypocrisy where, you know, the actual, the actual one, well, obviously, Bolivia's now no longer under, under that dictatorship, but during that whole time, the U.S. had been very friendly to the Jimmy Anya's coup regime, had been very supportive of the organization of American states, and at no point was this sort of yeah, it was really left up to other other delegations to raise these issues. So the, those kind of hypocrisies have long plagued the summit of the Americas. And of course, this is just, Bolivia is just the most recent example. We've had other examples of of coups in the region, whether they be military coups, like we saw in Honduras 
in 2011, or whether they be uh, more on the on the scale of parliamentary coups as we saw in Paraguay and in, and in in Brazil. But you know, for all the discourse of democracy and human rights, it's very clear that the U.S. has used this but only against particular governments or a particular states that it deems to be a threat to its own uh, interests. There was a counter-summit in Los Angeles at the same time? That's right. There was, there was a people's summit. This has been very, a, a common feature. I mean, I'm not necessarily against, you know, at all of the summit of the Americas, but, um, you know, it's sort of hard to, it was like, you know, it was decades ago, but you know, one of the key counter-protests, or counter-protests, more accurately, was a summit of the Americas in Quebec, uh, which was in 2001. That at that time captured a lot of global news. Um, it was around the time of the sort of anti-globalisation protests, protests against World Trade Organisation in Seattle. That came shortly after that and, and was one of those protests. A, a very powerful people summit was the one related to what I mentioned in 2005, when the, the summit, the, you know, it becomes definitively clear at the summit of the Americas that the, the Free Trade of America's Agreement is, is going to collapse. A number of the heads of state at that time spoke at the People's Summit. And we saw a similar thing this time. Not so much heads of states, but certainly at least, well, the heads of states of, of Venezuela and Cuba sent video messages. You know, they were not only uh, obviously not, not allowed access to the Summit of the Americas, but they were, weren't even allowed access to the United States. And, and so did Evo Morales, the former Bolivian president who, who was overthrown in the coup. So the, the People's Summit was an ability to, for, for some of those governments, but more than anything for, for activist groups, solidarity groups, anti-war groups, to also get together and continue their discussion of you know, what could an alternate solidarity from below look like. So we, we sort of kind of really have these this three levels of the de facto summits or, or you know shadow summits that occurred, the official summit of the Americas, the, the unofficial summit, or the unofficial sort of alliance of governments that you know didn't really agree with this conception of the Summit of the Americas based on exclusion, and then a, a summit from below of, of the people's movement. And we had between those three actors that you know crossed into each other. So we had those governments that didn't agree with exclusion still participating though in the Summit of the Americas. We had the countries from the Summit of the Americas participating in the People's Summit. Um, we had activists disrupting the Summit of the Americas. So all, all of those three factors were interplaying uh, in Los Angeles uh, at, during this, this recent um, summit. Do you believe the United States will continue to have these summits? Because I did read that the media was not on their side in the US either. They said it was a bit of a downer. The thing is that, you know, it's, these, these summits, you know, at least the, the idea of them, is that they're, they're meant to rotate around the region. So the real question will be, well, who, if anyone, will want to hold the next one? And if so, what would be the, the purpose of that one? As I said, the original ones had a very strong purpose, which was essentially for the, the free trade of the Americas. It got into a bit of a lull. Here the U.S. thought they could reinvigorate it, but obviously they, they didn't succeed in doing that. Now, will they continue to push that? And if they do, who will they get to do that? You know, will... Will the U.S. agree to hold in enough? Will, will they try to put their hands up to hold the next one in, in three years? They're there roughly every three years. The likelihood is if they do that and once again push to exclude um, these three countries or you know or, or more countries, that the reaction will be even stronger the next time. So that that seems unlikely. Will some other country be willing to host it whilst maintaining the U.S. policy of exclusion? Very unlikely. It's sort of now in a in a moment of stasis. Of course, they've got three years to to sort of 
definitively work out, you know, we're um, holding another, the, the next summit. Things could change. The government, the official, you know, government of the host country could, could change in terms of their politics. So we're yet to see, but I think certainly, as you said in, in your question, it's, it's, you know, the, the, the media and, and, and pundits and commentators are very correct in, in their assessment that this was hardly a, a positive springboard from which the U.S. to, to build on. Um, and it sort of really comes in, in the wake of a number of ongoing sort of setbacks in, in terms of attempting to assert itself in the region. And we'll hear more from Fred Fuentes on the program next week when he discusses the recent victory of the left in Colombia. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.